Whisper Podcast. Oh, sorry. Whisper Podcast may contain content that may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. That's better. Welcome to Whisper Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Tyler. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm Dylan Gomez. My pronouns are they, them. This podcast is where... The fine arts, true crime, and mental health are a throuple. We bring you episode five. And today, we're going to be discussing William Ford. Um, so Dylan, have you heard of William Ford before? I actually haven't. No, I, I don't know. I'm excited to learn about uh, about this topic. Yeah. So, okay. So, it's a Netflix documentary. Um, the Netflix documentary is called Strong Island, and it was made by one of his siblings. Their name is Yancey Ford, and um, they're also queer as well, which obviously I love, um, but they're also queer as well. I'm just a little bit unaware of their pronouns, so because I'm unaware, I'm just going to refer to them as they slash them. If anyone out there happens to know their pronouns, please feel free to correct me and let me know. Um, but before we get into the story, how are you doing today, Dylan? Oh, I'm doing fabulous. Thank you for asking. How are you doing, Zach? <laughs> Honestly, I'm doing pretty good. It's like a noisy day out here in LA, so if you... Oh, maybe I shouldn't triangulate my location. Well, bitch, LA is big. Hello? Hello. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's noisy out here in LA. And like, Dylan and I were recording some content earlier, and I was literally like yelling out the window, can you shut the fuck up? Like, I'm trying to record my <laughs> podcast. The most that LA shit. thing to scream out a window, by the way. <laughs> That shit had me dying. <laughs> um, okay. Anyways, moving on to our story. So our story starts with Barbara and William Ford Sr. Um, for clarity, we'll refer to him as Mr. Ford. So Barbara and Mr. Ford met in October in 1958, and they got married on July 10th in 1965. Um, after getting married, they moved out to New York, and they lived in an apartment in Brooklyn. So, at the time, Barbara worked as an English teacher in New York, and then she worked her way up to become the principal of Thomas Jefferson High School in East New York. Um, Mr. Ford worked at Andrew Keller's, and according to Barbara, they sold fabulous, beautiful, and fantastic shoes. Which, like, by the way, like, if I had someone, like, who worked at a shoe store, like, I would be so into that. Like, discounted shoes? Hello! I feel like if there's anything that you can't have too much of, it's, it's shoes. Um, for sure. I wish, honestly, I wish I had more space for my shoes, but if I had more space, I would definitely have a significant amount of shoes. Like, okay. <laughs> I have, okay, I'm, I'm so sorry. I hate to step away from the topic, topic, but I have so many shoes that it's like, my shoe holder is filled, and then like the side of my closet, like there's just a bunch of them on the floor, and then there's some under my bed. Like I don't even know what shoes I. Have I at this point. my taste in <laughs> shoes are as bulky as possible. Like I literally love combat boots. Like that's what I live in. <gasps> if they platform, even better. Like so, I oh. just like where's hello the space. I don't have it, but <laughs> I mean, am I gonna stop buying combat boots? No, 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 I am not. So it's like Barbara. I get it. We get it, Barbara. I get it, Barbara. I feel you. We understand. <laughs> in the apartment complex they lived in, Barbara mentioned that there were a bunch of Jewish ladies that lived there. Um, and they would all line up in the front of the window in the afternoon and they'd sit there. Uh, Barbara found them to be wonderful. And one day a lady looked at Barbara and said, it looks as if you're going to have a baby. And sure enough, she was pregnant with William. So she mentions that she was elated during her pregnancy. And like, I think that one of the cutest things that she said in the documentary was like, 
how when she would start singing, she could feel like William like just staying still in her body. But then like after she would stop, like he would start moving like his little arms and his little legs. And I just thought that that was like so adorable, but like also like pregnancy is so interesting to me. William Ford Jr. was born in 1967. And I tried searching Google everywhere for his birthday and I couldn't find it anywhere, which I think that's why this story is like even more important to me because it's like when you search William Ford, regardless of like if you search William Ford Strong Island or just like his name itself, you can't find his birthday. Hmm. And like you can't even find the story itself. Like you literally have to like yeah, it's just you not found and it's not exactly. And I'm just like why do you have to dig about a story that's like so significant? Really? Um oh that yeah. So was it you think like I I still don't know what story we're referring to. Um but but um do you think it was like covered up or so, like, do you think people try to cover it up? It possibly could be. But what I really don't get is that, like, this is an award-winning film. Like, Yancey, oh. they won an award for it. I believe it was either, like, an Emmy or something like that. But it's, like... Oh, cool. It, it's an award-winning film. So it's, like, if you Google it, you think that you would find more information about, like, the people who it involves. But you don't. And so I just find that to be super interesting. But anyways, uh, William Ford Jr. was born in 1967. And after William was born, Mr. Ford decided that he wanted to become a motorman, also known as someone who operates a tram or a train. So he took the test for transit authority to become a draftsman and he passed. So yay, great for him. Um, <clears throat> so shortly after this wonderful job opportunity, Yancey, their middle child, was born. And then following, following them in 1972 was their youngest, Lauren. So after having three children, the Ford parents decided it was time to move somewhere with more space. So, they started their search in Brooklyn, and Mr. Ford wasn't fond of anything that they found. So, that was when Barbara found out how much Mr. Ford actually wanted to move to Long Island, New York. And Mr. Ford gained a perspective of Long Island, New York from being inside of the motorman's cabin on the J-Train. He saw a different perspective of New York that Barbara didn't. He saw poverty, crime, violence, and a rapidly declining city. And it's not that he was a fearful man, he was just a realist. And part of the reason why he had a different perspective was because he didn't want to put his family or their future at risk, especially after he's been able to come out of Jim Crow South. So one day, Barbara and Mr. Ford met with Sam Makoa in Long Island, and he lived in the community there. He was the agent for the company that bought the land and built the houses. Barbara was told later that they wanted to attract people who were employed by the city, who they thought could afford the homes. And Barbara wasn't a fan of living in the new development because it was a plan to have multiple segregated areas where there were pockets of neighborhoods where there was a haven of African-American city workers. But then aside from that, it was predominantly white. So just to clarify, if you didn't already know, the Ford family is African-American. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, and it okay. really adds to the story, obviously. Mm -hmm. But she didn't feel like this was an accident. So why it was such a concern for her was because she felt as if her children wouldn't have a home to grow up in, one that belonged to them as a family, and she just wanted to ensure that her family had it differently. When they moved to the new development, and prior to, Barbara made it a principle in her children's life that they would love each other, which, you know, I think that's like one of the greatest things is like wanting your children to love each other because it's like nobody else is going to have your back, so it's like you guys might as well like have each other's back. And it's like, mm -hmm. especially being... Like a strong support system. Exactly. And it's like, you know, if you know that you're going to be moving to this area where it's like 
just these segregated areas, you're really going to want your children to be there for each other because it's like, you're especially not going to have no one. And again, this is like back in the 70s, you know? So it's like, it was a different time Mm -hmm. back then. So you really needed to have a good support system. So um, even one of William's friends, Harvey, had mentioned that when you go out, you didn't know if you'd be running back for your life. Later on down the line, Yancey mentions that it was like moving back to a segregated community. And the segregation draws a line not just around your neighborhood, but also your life. The way that they saw it, it was, uh, sorry, you can't have more. Sorry, you can't earn more. You can't shop here. You can't live here. You can't move here. This is it for you. And while the houses were affordable, it was deceptive because the taxes were high and the public schools were bad. And now, on top of a mortgage and car payments, they had to pay a combined 36 years of tuition to put their kids through Catholic school. Just so that way, they didn't have to attend an unexceptional public school. The way that I see it is that you're separating a large group of people and collecting them just to put them in a box. And please explain how this allows for there to be freedom and for there to be communication amongst others of different cultures. Like, how are you going to create a community if you're just going to shut people away? I mean... That's the whole basis of systematic racism. Hello! So, hello! Hello! And obviously, they were trying to steer away from them, but they still got pulled in, right? They still ended up having to move into that area. Exactly. Or, oh, gosh. And, like, it sucks. I think, like, one of the, like, we're not even to the problematic portion of the story. Like, this is problematic. Oh. But it gets more oh, problematic. I, 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 oh, okay. Well, the, I'm pissed already so uh. (laughs) but it's just like you know barbara like yes they were living in a better neighborhood quote unquote but it was only considered better because it was surrounded by white people like what the fuck yeah and that just makes like on honestly it just makes you kind of more isolated exactly you're you face more discrimination um that's something like I was thinking about, like, the the other... What was I watching? I was, like, probably watching some documentary or something. And it was about, like, when they started desegregating schools, right? And it's, like, the first children who are, like, African-American and they were, like, going into these school systems that used to be all white. Um, how traumatizing it must be knowing, like, most of your, you know, classmates hate you for no reason, you know, and other than, you know, something you can't help. So it just, like, it blows my mind how, like, school's already not easy for a lot of people. Like, it's it's something that's, like, there's no perfect school system that's gonna, you know, teach everybody the right way for their, their, because we all learn different, so. Exactly. Uh, So, and just add the whole, like, racial thing on top of that, but, like, you know. Exactly. That's tough. So, do you happen to know, like, when they started desegregating schools? Mm, do you know, like, the exact date? I, I, don't, I know. don't know the exact date. You know what? We are not cavemen. <laughs> so, we're going to look, as, look this up. I feel like... Oh, man. Because I really want to see, like, it was. how far after this was. So, this... Okay, so that was in 1954, so this is literally, like, 20 years later, and it's, like, obviously, as we could see today, like, in 2020, not much has changed, you know? So it's, like, I can only no, imagine... No, the primarily Black and Latino, like, school sis- school districts are, you know, wildly underfunded compared to the white, quotation, yeah, school systems that are, you know, get most of the funding, so... 
Exactly. So it's just like, that's like why it was such a concern for Barbara too, you know, because it's like her and Mr. Ford, they lived through that. Like that was Mm -hmm. part of their life, you know? So it's like, it makes sense why moving to this area was such a big concern for her and like why it was scary. Like I totally get it. So on February 16th, William and Leslin, who I assume was a friend or partner to William, had taken Lauren bowling. And if you forgot, that's the youngest sister. Um, and they were on their way back, and Lauren was sitting behind William, and Leslin was driving. They were going to take a shortcut onto the street bright side. And as they were turning, Lauren, and, Lauren had seen a tow truck that didn't have any lights on. And before she could say anything, they were in a car accident. William helped Lauren out of the car and asked if she was okay. Thankfully, she was. Then he went to go and sit her down, and he told her to stay there. The person driving the tow truck was 19-year-old Mark Riley. He was a mechanic for the Super Stang body shop that the tow truck belonged to. Mark told William that there was no need to file a police report because they would fix and take care of Leslin's car. So basically, the car was going to be fixed by the guys who hit it. Or it was supposed to be. Mm. So. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, exactly. Mm, is the right mm-hmm. response. <laughs> William reaches out to his best friend Kevin to tell him what happened. When Kevin was told where the car was taken, he said, I don't think that place is legit. And I don't think it is what you think it is. You should be very careful because they're not the kind of people you want to play around with. And obviously, William didn't think too much of this because he was like, okay, well, like, fortunately, my car was hit by people who just so happened to be mechanics. Like, it's going to be taken care of. Like, I'm fine, Kevin. Like, it's fine. Mm, Still filing the police report. Right? And it's like... I don't know. I just think... I don't know. I don't know the time. Like, I don't know the time nor the tension. Exactly. And I, I couldn't even... I couldn't even grasp that, to be honest with you. So, I don't know. So, so maybe for them it wasn't safe. And that was, like, the only, you know, right thing to do. Right? Okay. Exactly. Because it's okay. like, you don't know, like... Well, I feel like we'll kind of find out in the story how the police play a role in this. But it's just like, even mm-hmm. if he did decide to file a police report would the police even be on his side like yeah anyways um some time passes and on march 19th leslin thought that she should check on her car at the time leslin worked with barbara on rikers island leslin had asked barbara on their way home if she would stop by the mechanic's place and see if the car was finished and this is where the drama had started because it wasn't finished actually they hadn't even started There's not too much detail on what exactly took place that night, but Barbara mentions it wasn't great. On April 7th in the evening, William reaches out to Kevin and he says, Hey, what are you doing? I need to ask you for a favor. Kevin says, Okay, what's up? William says, I need to go and pick up the car. Although it was late, Kevin thought it was kind of weird, but at that point, he knew that it was the kind of shop that would be open all types of hours of the night. So Kevin said, Oh, great. Are you actually picking up the car? And William was like, yeah, it's all done. Then Kevin falls with, great, so this is all over. So Kevin got in the car and he went three blocks to go to William's house. When William came outside, he seemed like he was in a good mood and Kevin didn't think anything of it. So William gets in the car and then Kevin turns on the car and he says, let's go to Queens, which was their code for going to a strip club. And let's go grab a beer. And to be honest with you, at this point, I think Kevin already had, like, an uneasy feeling. William was like, yeah, let me just go and get the car. When they got to the first stop sign on the street, Kevin was really insisting, hey, I think we should go and get a beer. And William was like, Kev, you're bugging me. Please just go and take me to get the car. 
They turn and they start heading down on Ferndale towards Brightside. Then once you make the turn, the mechanic shop is right there. Once they arrive, William went into the yard and then somebody came out of the shop door. The guy who came out of the shop door went by the name of Tom. From the car, Kevin could immediately tell that words were starting to be exchanged. And Kevin said, oh, here we go. So he proceeds to join William and Tom in the yard. Kevin mentioned that it was nothing physical and nothing too out of control. All he recalls was that William wasn't threatening Tom and said he was saying things like, when I get accepted into the police or corrections academy, either one, I'm telling you, I'm going to get this place shut down. So a little bit of a backstory to this. William was really interested in becoming a police officer or a corrections officer, you know? So it's like, Mm -hmm. obviously, like, what he's saying, like, he's not hurting anybody. It's just he was telling you, like, I'm going to do this to you when this happens. But he wasn't doing anything that night to provoke a fight. And, you Mm -hmm. know, like, that doesn't seem threatening to me. Like, it's just like, okay, like, you know, hearsay. But Kevin didn't feel the need to get involved because he knew that William wasn't going to do anything that night. Then someone walked out of the garage and came out about four feet. And William turned to Kevin and said, that's the kid that cursed out my mom. Can you guess who the kid was? Who? It was Mark Riley. <gasps> so as you recall, Mark Riley was the one that hit their car. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he also cursed out his mom. His, his mom. mom. No one does that to your mom. Even if you're mad at your mom, no one does that to your mom. No, nobody does that to your mom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin knew that no one could disrespect your mom and get away with it, so he understood why William would be upset. It was then Kevin knew that somebody was going to be getting into a fight, and he knew that there was nothing he could say, so he just said, okay. William went to walk toward him, and Mark turned back into the garage and made a left and disappeared. William followed him into the garage and made a left. All of a sudden, Kevin heard a pop. Kevin looked at Tom, and he was like, what the hell was that? Tom said he didn't know. Kevin said, it sounded like an air compressor. Then he asked Tom, do you guys have a gun here? And Tom said, yeah, we have one in the back. When Kevin found out, he was like, oh shit. By the time Kevin got to the garage door, William was backpedaling and he just spun with the biggest eyeballs. He just looked at Kevin and goes, Kev, he shot me, then proceeded to fall onto Kevin. Kevin wasn't strong enough to hold him up and they both fell to the ground. Kevin asked Tom what kind of gun it was. Tom said it was a 22 rifle, which made Kevin chuckle because it was the kind that you would use to hunt rabbits and birds. Kevin said he remembered holding William and saying, dude, you got shot with a 22. This is hilarious. Are you kidding me? Get up. But William just lied there. Kevin persisted, dude, get up. It was then Kevin looked over and saw some kind of fluid on the pavement. He realized it was blood. Kevin has never seen blood before, so you can imagine how in shock he was. After that, Kevin remembers everything happening so fast. The police came and they grabbed Kevin and they were pulling him away from and they were pulling him away from William. Kevin told the officer, "You can't leave him there." The cop said, "There's a person with a gun inside. Get behind the car." So they put Kevin behind the police car and they left him there. And Kevin hollered, "You can't leave him there." One of the cops told him that he be- better not move. Next thing you know, they're walking out with Mark. Kevin recalls that Mark never went in handcuffs. He doesn't even remember them putting him in a police car. Instead, they put him against a car and there was a conversation between Mark and the police. All of this was super weird to Kevin, but he knew he had to be paying attention. Then, Kevin saw the cops walking Mark to a limousine. A what? 
are you fucking kidding me? A limousine. He just shot somebody. A limousine. He just shot somebody. Yeah. And he was never put in handcuffs. And you're telling me that the cops can be aggressive with Kevin and just be like, stay here, get behind the car, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, they're just going to let this fucking white kid walk out, no handcuffs, have a conversation, then walk his ass to a limousine? Where did the limousine even come from? Like, what? Doesn't make any... Okay. Literally. All right. Okay. What is happening? So... What is She's getting happening? off. That's what's happening, but... As you can see, gee, who, who would think? A white person getting off for doing something to a black person? Hmm. Weird. Um, anyways, Kevin just stood there and... This is crazy because he is not in handcuffs and they're getting into a limo. So while Mark was inside of the limo for some time, Kevin kept asking, where's the ambulance? What's going on? And of course, Kevin is very concerned about William and he really wanted to go and see him. So he makes an attempt to step away from the car and the cop stops him and says, you're not going anywhere. You're coming with us to the precinct. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered. You have to understand that a man has been murdered here tonight. (gasps) This whole time... Kevin thought that his friend was still alive. From the time that William was shot to the limo pulling up, it was a surprise to Kevin that Mark wasn't going to jail. He's gonna pin it on him. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna pin it on him. I know it. I know it. And that's why, you know, he gets a limousine ride. Exactly. And. Exactly, Dr. Phil. Okay, okay. So. All right, I'm ready. Let's hear it. Barbara had gotten a call from Kevin, and he said, Miss Ford, you need to come to the Super Sting shop. And of course, Barbara was like, why? What's going on? Given what happened the last time she was there, you could imagine her concern. Kevin said, something happened. It took her little to no time to jump in the car to go to the auto shop. Once she got there, there was a barricade, and Barbara said that no officer had any interest in speaking to her, nor did they look at her. Then Kevin came to her, and he said, Mark Riley shot William. Once she knew what happened, Barbara asked an officer, Do you know where my son is? I want to be with my son. The officer told her that they had taken him to LIPA to airlift him to Stony Brook. So Barbara rushed her way to the hospital, and when she got into the emergency room area that William was in, it was significantly small, and there was just beds where people were being treated. She saw William lying there, and she mentioned that he looked so peaceful. Which... I think it's, like, super sad. Like, he was just shot. And it's, like, can you... Like, I know that she said that, like, her son looks like he was peaceful, like, while he was just lying there. But he's literally in a room amongst other people that are being treated. And it's small. Like, can you imagine, like... Yeah. Um. Anyways, at home, Lauren has little to no clue as to what's going on. The last she heard from her mom was that Kevin called at 11 o'clock. Time goes by and nothing yet from Barbara. But when one in the morning comes around, Mr. Ford comes home from work. He notices that no one is home but Lauren, and he asks, Where is your mother? Where is William? Lauren told him what she knew, which was William was in a fight and Mom went to go and get him. Then they hear a car pull up and it's Barbara. She comes inside with a blank stare and looks at them and says, He's gone. At the time, Lauren was too young to hear the gruesome details, but obviously Mr. Ford had to know what happened. Elsewhere... Yancey's boss asked them to call home. Immediately, they knew something was off. They asked their boss if she knew what was wrong, and their boss told them to stay calm. Yancey replies, don't tell me to stay calm. They reach out to home, and Mr. Ford answers. Yancey asked, what's happening? Is it mom? He said, your mother is fine. 
they followed up with, is it Lauren? What's happening? It's William. He's gone, said Mr. Ford. After hearing the after hearing the news, Yancey couldn't remember the next part of the conversation. All they remember is screaming, punching a wall, screaming some more, and packing some clothes and heading off to stay with their family. Yancey recalls walking in the house and feeling like they were surrounded by strangers. And it was strange for them because these were people that they had known for all the, most of their life. They remember walking and having to suppress the urge to tell everyone to get the fuck out of the house. Their mother was on the couch sleeping and crying, while their father was stunned and Lauren was alone. Yancey wanted to turn around and leave, but they knew that that wasn't an option. When Barbara went to the DA, she did not feel that they were received as parents of a victim, but folks being informed that an investigation had to be conducted and would be conducted. She said that she was foolish to think that things were going to be okay. Which, can you imagine? Your son was just killed, and like you're going to try to get information, get to know what you can, and then it's just like, oh, we're going to investigate sometime, some point. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. throughout this whole story, I just have a lot of empathy for everyone in the family. Because oh, I, can't, I can't even imagine, like, what that feels like. Mm-hmm. No, losing somebody like that in such a gruesome way, and then feeling like the people that are meant to get justice for them don't care. At all. It's so sad. So, following thereafter, Kevin got a call to come and see Miss Jones. He had no experience with this kind of stuff, and looking back on it, he wishes he would have gotten a lawyer. He didn't really know what should have gone on, and this Miss Jones person says, you just go there, answer questions, you know, about that night, and that's all. Kevin didn't know that she was a part of the DA. He thought that he was going to talk to a detective. He was shocked when she walked in the room and she started asking questions about the gym. She said, you know, you look like you're in pretty good shape. How much do you weigh? Then she asked something about William's size, and she was kind of talking at Kevin rather than asking questions. Kevin noticed that she didn't even sit down. She just kept pacing. Personally, I believe that they were just looking for somebody to point a finger at. Kevin was asking himself, why were they asking me all these questions about strength and the gym? Why are there no questions about what happened that night with William? And till this day, this still happens when it comes to the black community. All this time they spend looking at what was wrong with the victim, they could actually be solving the fucking case. Like, this is something that we're still dealing with today. And I'm like, mind blown. Later that summer, after William's murder, Yancey mentions how there were countless of times that they would look out the window and see the same car with its lights off parked across the street. Whoever it was, they were trying to intimidate the Ford parents, as well as calling the house in the middle of the night just for them to answer and there would be no one on the other line. This went on for months, and Yancey got to the point to where they just unplugged all the phones in the house except for the one in their room, just so that way their parents wouldn't have to answer to the silence and then look out the window to see the same car parked across the street. Even though this was harassing and bothersome, the Ford parents learned from growing up in the South that the cops and the KKK were one and the same, and that they couldn't turn to the police for protection. They fell at a place where the cops had turned their own son into his own prime suspect in his murder. With the calls and the car parked across the street, there was a growing sense that the DA was actually going to let Mark get away with murder. But Barbara didn't rest. She knew that something had to be done. She wrote a letter to the district attorney Catterson and it's quoted as saying, Dear Mr. Catterson, I am the mother of William Ford Jr., a 24 year old man who was murdered by Mark Riley. 
my family and I had been working with Detective James Hughes and Assistant DA Stephen O'Brien regarding the investigation of this crime. We have waited and worked cooperatively with the investigation. There is, however, a nagging doubt which I have regarding the prosecution of this crime. Now, nearly two months later, after his deliberate death, I and my family have yet to receive even a note from the Rileys, adding insult to injury. I now fear that your office has not yet fully embraced the advocacy for the people of the state of New York in this prosecution of this case. Why it is, because we are being told, it's entirely up to the grand jury. I believe that the strength of this present presentation made to the grand jury by your office is the determining factor. My son was not armed, not violent, not aggressing. In no way is it justifiable. I intend never to rest until his murder is brought to justice. With the advocacy of your office for the people of the state of New York, I trust that it will be soon, for we too are the people. Barbara Donmore Ford. So, Dylan, tell me, do you know what a grand jury is? Yes. Okay, wonderful. So, if you don't know what a grand jury is, the Bill of Rights calls for a grand jury in felony cases that allows a prosecutor to be present in its evidence to a neutral party, whether it's a grand jury or judge, and in a preliminary hearing, to show that there are two things. One, that there is probable cause that a crime has been committed, and probable cause that, that this is the individual who committed a crime. A grand jury is compromised of 23 citizens randomly selected from the eligible jury pool. So, at a trial, it has to be proven beyond reasonable doubt to a moral certainty that the person charged is a defendant who committed the crime. But in the grand jury, it's just probable cause. Mm -hmm. Probable cause is a reasonable basis for believing that a crime may have been committed. In order for a case to go to trial, the grand jury would have to have voted a true bill saying that there is a probable cause to move forward. A true bill is a decision of the grand jury that formally charges a person with committing a crime and begins with the criminal prosecution process. So I'm sure, as you also know, the grand jury is mostly a secret and it's actually supposed to be used as a protection for the defendant if the grand jury decides that there is not probable cause, mm -hmm. that the person should not have the stigma of having being brought before a grand jury. The disclosure of a secret grand jury material can be a crime in jurisdiction and it's certainly unethical for a prosecutor to disclose things that happen to a grand jury, and the grand juror themselves cannot disclose. But the witnesses are free to talk about what is to be presented to a grand jury. So Barbara went in front of the grand jury, and she noticed that nobody there looked like her. There was no person of color. She said there must have been 20 plus people there. There was one person who was reading a book, another lady who was reading a magazine, and there was a conversation going on. Barbara felt that nobody cared about what she had to say. They weren't paying attention to Barbara. And Barbara became very angry with herself because at one point she began to cry. She hated that moment because she felt like they were going to say, here is another black woman who didn't do her job with her child and now she wants us to make somebody pay. Even Mr. Ford told her, don't expect anything because it ain't gonna happen. Barbara mentions that she looked at the jury to see who was paying attention. Which, how could you come to a viable decision if you're reading a magazine? If you're doing the crossword puzzle, if you're having a conversation, Barbara felt that serving on a jury was one of the greatest privileges of citizenship in the United States. She knew it wouldn't be treated in a way that was based on race, creed, or color. You should judge the content of the evidence presented. Barbara felt that they did not give a damn. If she died tomorrow or the next day, she would die believing that they did not care because her son was a young man of color and she would believe that until the day that she died. Ugh. Jesus. Yeah. So. Oh no. That is so scary to have like 
all the jurors be white. Yeah. Well, you didn't say they were all white, but nobody looked like her. So nobody was black. Exactly. And she said herself, you know, like, there is no person of color there. So it's like, all these people literally don't care. Like, they don't care. And it's just so sad because it's like, this is her son's life. Like, Mm -hmm. hello, this is her child. And no one's taking this seriously. Nobody from the cops, nobody from the jury, like, it's just annoying. Instances like that is like, that's why, you know, juries, obviously, they have to be diverse. Um, And also there always has to be that same diversity that that there is in juries, that there should be in juries. Um, They need in police force. The people who are enforcing the laws need to look like the people who are living in the communities. Like, they need to look like the communities they serve. And they need to live in their communities. So, oh man, that sucks for her. I I can't imagine, like, looking over. It, like, takes so much courage to, like, go and speak your mind in front of all of these strangers. And then when you see all of these strangers not give a shit, like, that... That does make my heart feel heavy for her, for sure. And it's just so disheartening. And I feel like this really brings us back to that point as to why it was her main concern in living a a predominantly white neighborhood. It's like, I don't know. At first, I feel like a lot of people really wouldn't think about that too much, but she knew from the Mm get-go that that was going to be an issue, and this is exactly where that issue comes into play. So, shortly after Barbara went in front of the grand jury, an ADA had gone to gone to the Ford house and informed Barbara that they had to return a no true bill and they didn't indict. That was all they had to say. Upon being informed, Barbara collapsed. She recovered shortly after, but she knew that her efforts really mattered to no one that day. She goes on to mention that after the news, the house had a stillness. It was nothing like she ever felt before and there was a silence for her. It felt like all the sound in the world had left. Barbara felt as if she did William a great disservice by raising him the way that she did. Because they always try to teach their children that you see character, not color. And she wondered how she could be so wrong. And I think even till this day, like, when people try to use, like, oh, I don't see color as, like, a thing, Mm -mm. this is one of the reasons why it is so fucking problematic. Because... You might have the privilege of not seeing color, right? And there are big-ass quotations around that shit, because you see color. Uh, instead of pretending like that's not an issue, just completely, you know, going beside the point of your privilege, like, you can state the fact there is prejudice. There is the, the privilege is there for, for these people, right? To be able to say that color is not a problem, right? Because it's not a problem to you. Like, there's a lot of privilege in being able to say that. Because not everybody can say that. Exactly. And it's like, I think that's why she really felt as if, like, teaching her kids that to see character and not color, like, this is where it kind of played an unfortunate role in her lives. You know, even being, like not privileged Mm -hmm. if that makes sense no even just like not gosh like it's just it it sucks that like you have to learn this 
you know, like they teach courses like that in school in predominantly black neighborhoods. Like they have to teach the children how to interact with the cops and like do all that because their their life is at risk. Oh, and God. when have they ever had to teach a white kid that? Never. Yeah. They probably didn't, most most people, I honestly, I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, yeah. Before, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's been so much, like, flood of content I've been exposed to now. The fact, like, I only recently realized that that's something that they teach in high schools in, like, black neighborhoods. That they teach it, the children, these are children. And you're teaching them how to interact with cops, but that's literally saving their lives because they are at risk if they don't comply oh, yeah. to officers' demands, right? So, oh gosh, it's just... <laughs> and honestly, like, I'm really glad that, like, you brought that to my attention because, like, I didn't know that, like, that was something that they had to teach, like, they, in school they do. to, like, black children, like... They do, and, like, you know... Like, mostly black and, like, Latino, um, like, neighborhoods, they do that. And it's, like, but it's, like, for their safety. That's if, like, the school cares. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, wants to help their students in that way. I think that's, I think that's great. I think it's sad that we have to do it, but I think. Oh, yeah. That, you know, in a way. Yeah. I I feel as if it's. I can't even say that it's, like, bittersweet, to be quite honest. Like, it's it's helpful, but, like, also it's sad that the people that are supposed to protect you are also your, like, biggest concern at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh. Does, this doesn't have a happy ending, does it? I really wish that it did. You're, like, it, you're, like, it the end. It only progressively no. gets worse, and... Oh, Okay. So the year after that William was killed, um, Mm -hmm. Mr. Ford had a stroke that paralyzed him on the left side of his body, and he passed away. So Barbara now has lost her son, and she has lost her husband. So, yeah, I mean, uh, poor Barbara. Like, I just have so much sympathy for Barbara, so much sympathy for Yancey, and so much sympathy for, like, Lauren, like, these were important people to them. This was their family. And it's like one of them was brutally murdered. And then, like, they lost their father and she lost her husband. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, Barbara had always felt that there was something that she didn't know that contributed to her son's death. Anytime she would ask Yancey if there was something that she didn't know, Yancey had always said no. But that wasn't the truth. William had a conversation with Yancey. William had called Yancey while they were in college in upstate New York. When William had a confrontation, not the night that he was killed, but about a month prior at Supersting, he threw a vacuum cleaner and picked up a car door, threatening to slam it down. He called Yancey after, and he told them what he had done. Yancey was so proud of him, and they cheered him on for being a badass, for not taking shit from anybody. Yancey was really surprised that he called them, and William was proud of himself. William also wanted Yancey to be proud of him. Yancey mentions that the reason why this phone call was so important to them was because when they had gotten to college, they could finally come out and be who they wanted to be, which was queer, and that wasn't who William had known. With William reaching out, they felt as if them and William were actually having a conversation. And I'm sure you know that, like, prior to coming out of the closet, like... 
no one really knows who you really are. Like, you're just, you just kind of feel like a floating person, you know? So it's like, okay, I'm here in college, I'm out, and, like, my brother's reaching out to me, and, like, mm-hmm. he wants me to be proud of him. And, like, I just feel so close to him, like, in this moment. Yeah, you feel, you feel, like, vulnerable, especially around that time, like, when you know you're either, like, gonna come out soon, or you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about, like, people that are gonna be there and people that aren't, and just having, like, a person to talk to and be supportive. It, it's a really big deal, um, but on the contrary, that's also why Yancey felt as if they fucked it up. They felt as if they could have helped William to stay out of the situation to begin with. If they told their parents about the first incident, he would have been stopped in his tracks because they both would have come down on him. But instead, Yancey enjoyed their brother the hero. And a month later or so, their hero was dead. The madness about their brother's death would drive them mad if they weren't able to hold themselves accountable, at least for a small part of it. Because they felt as if it grounds it somewhere. It puts it on the earth as opposed to it being in the ether, or as opposed to it in the unknown, or in the anonymous. They felt that if they didn't ground it somewhere within themselves, then it would be everywhere, all the time. It's ubiquitous, and they thought that was greater and more damaging and heavier burden to live with. Them to blame themselves for not being a smart 19-year-old when their brother called them and told them about the stupid fight that he had gotten. So, Yancey had reached out to Detective James Hughes of Suffolk County Police Department, who investigated the case. Detective Hughes mentions that with every bit of evidence that was presented to the grand jury, the grand jury pretty much looked at the case as a self-defense case. They thought it was a justifiable shooting on Mark Riley's end. The way the grand jury went was supported by the facts and evidence, and Detective Hughes mentions that this is a part of what made the case so hard. Hughes himself said that he didn't feel as if the grand jury necessarily went the wrong direction because he had felt that the number of different statements from people about incidents prior to this incident and Yancey had mentioned that they were aware of the incident prior to when they were killed. Hughes understands how significant this is to Yancey, so he wanted to get a hold of some reports and he would get back to them. After the call with Detective Hughes, Yancey reaches out to a woman, and you can just hear the distraught in their voice, and how sad they are. They just start telling the woman, the fucking vacuum cleaner incident is why they didn't indict him, because he threw a vacuum cleaner, because he picked up a car door, and apparently that's enough of a reason to justify reasonable fear. Later, when Detective Hughes calls Yancey back with his reports, he mentions that after the incident on February 16th, where the car, where there was a car accident and Super Singh agreed to fix the car, and they hadn't by March 19th, Barbara and Leslin went to the shop to see what was going on. Mark Riley may have said something that made Barbara upset, which got William upset. William went to the shop with Kevin Myers, and William was speaking to Tom. William was talking to Tom. He was very angry because he had upset his mother, and he was described as shaking with anger and wanted to know who disrespected his mother. So he picked up the car door and was about to throw it from the Corvette, but the girl who owned the Corvette was there and stepped in, so he put the door down. At that time, William picked up a vacuum cleaner, put it over his head, and the water fell onto him. He threw the vacuum and broke it. He then picked up a hammer and began to come at Mark Riley and he held him responsible because he may have been the one who disrespected his mom. But he never swung at him, he never hit him, never threatened him, but he had a hammer in his hand. Mark was petrified, but the other members were actually kind of laughing at him, and they were calling him a little girl. He was obviously frightened. William was a big guy, and he was intimidated. After that, William went home, and Barbara noticed that he was soaking wet. She asked what had happened, and he said that he was wet from sweat with the gym. 
and Hughes followed up with the gym seeing if there was if he was actually there, but William had not been at the gym that day. The vehicle was subsequently released to Barbara, and there was something about somebody from the shop following the car home, and as a result of that, on April 7, 1982, Kevin Myers again with William returned to the Super Stang, and William was yelling at Tom, and ultimately sees Mark and goes after Mark. Mark retreated into the paint room where he grabbed the rifle. William walked into the paint room and approached him and made a comment about, what are you going to do with that? Came at him, and Mark fired one shot at him in the chest. There was no stone left unturned in this. Detective Hughes mentioned it was just unfortunate. So, to end our story, Yancey mentioned that there is no evidence of close rage firing. How do you measure the distance of reasonable fear? And that is the story of William Forge. How are you feeling? It just shows, like, how... It just... I mean, like, not surprised. And that's sad. Like, it's so sad that you're not surprised. Like... It, it, it's so sad, but I, like, honestly, like, I feel like I knew where the story was going. Like, no justice for this man. Because why? Because white fear. Like, that's it. <laughs> like, we need to stop teaching children to be scared of black people. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, it, we don't realize that's what we're doing yeah you know like systematically like it's always the problem child right they're always the problem children it's like yeah you name it they're gonna get the labels as opposed to children the same exact behavior they are labeled you know just being kids you know just being boys you know, reckless, uh, <laughs> uh, or, you know, being, me- you know, having some kind of mental issue that they got to work through. It's like nobody gives those children the, the, the benefit of the doubt. It's just always crime. You're a criminal. Throw you in jail. Make money off of you. Profit. So. Exactly. I just. That, God, is such a bummer. I wish, like. It's the truth, though. It's just like, you really want a happy ending to come out of the story, but the sad truth is, is it's just like, you knew from the get-go that there was going to be no No. happy ending. No, because there's no... And it's like... There's no... It would have been some kind of romanticized story, um, something fantastical and, like, not real. Like... (laughs) We were telling it that way, but this is the story is a true crime. So, true. So, therefore, <laughs> therefore, it's not... All aboard the true, true train. Hello. Yeah, not going to be fantastical or different. But, I mean, we do have the power, right? Yeah. Um, if we don't comply, if we're still exactly. about the problems that are in our criminal justice system, eventually all the pressure is going to amount to change. And and I think that's the moral of the story. It's just, just going and protecting the image of these black... Just black people. Like, they're not any worse or any better than, than us. And we, we can't... We cannot keep labeling them 
as criminals or jumping to conclusions as fast as possible. Like when children are children and they're exhibiting behavior, do treat them exactly how you would the rest of the classroom. Exactly. That's that's that. <laughs> exactly. Let's start them when they're young, you know? Yeah, and it's just like... It's so sad, because I saw a picture the other day, and it was, like, it was a fucking Karen. And, like, I mean, if you're listening to this now, I mean, obviously you're not listening to this in the past, but you know what a Karen is. And you see this woman, like, yelling out at her car to the Black Lives Matter movement supporters who are, like, protesting. She's yelling out of her car, like, and her children are right there with her yelling, too. And, like, these are, like, small children. Maybe, like, from the ages of, like, six to nine. And it's just, like, seeing that fucking image made me so sad because I'm, like, this is exactly how racism starts. And this is why it only continues to happen in today's, like, modern world. And then it's, like, obviously, we have the big fucking orange one who isn't a great example himself (laughs) and literally is quoted as saying thugs on his Twitter. Like... Oh, gosh. Yeah. (sighs) Just the world that we live in. It's but I it's disheartening. Do, yeah, it is. It is. But you know what? It's a reality check. And I think there is a there's power in knowing what the problem is. Like the systematic racism itself. Like trying being aware of it is the first step. Oh yeah, of course. It sucks. The initial reality of it sucks, right? And nobody likes to do the work to fix it, no. okay? It's work. It's work. It's work, especially if you are benefiting off of the system. You're not going to feel the urge to go against it, right? It's it's hard. Yeah, nobody's saying it's easy, but it's important. It's vital. Exactly. For the communities who are, it, like, in jeopardy and who are constantly being put down by the system. And... You know, like, there there has to be a point where people are just overwhelmed with the amount of imagery, the amount of exposure they're getting to this racism, right? To where they will stop being compliant. And you know what? If that, if somehow my voice helps with that, that is 100%. I am all for it. And that is, I think, something that is important to you, too. Oh, yeah, so of course. We are we are here for that, like, solely. Yes. To continue to educate ourselves and to educate others, hopefully, with what we know. Not that we know so much, but it's like we are taking the steps to learn. Exactly. And I think that's... And that's, like, that's the first step. And I think that that's, like, the first step, like, that anybody should do. And it's, like... I never want to put myself in a position where it's like, oh, you should go and do this. But it's like, no, you should really go and do this, you know? Because it's just like, we all, like, have... Everybody has unconscious biases. And I feel like, honestly, like, that's that's one of the first steps. Is like, check your unconscious biases. Because it's like, you may be being racist without even considering yourself racist. And I feel like, start there, check there, educate yourself. Because... No, this can't continue on. One, 100%. And I think, too, there's this big, like, guilt culture. Oh, my God. I think, like, we love attacking people, right? Because it feels like immediate gratification. Like, we're doing something about the problem. But 
the problem isn't just let's attack these people that are doing wrong, right? It's, it's, that's not gonna change their behavior. They're gonna feel attacked, therefore gonna put up their defenses. And that's why I admire people who are able to kind of, yes, let's say somebody, and I'm not telling anybody to not be offended towards people, like, like, you are 100%, it's up to you, but I feel like a lot of the time, at least when people discriminate against me, I, the things they discriminate against me for, right, I, I think it's so important that, I don't think all of them do it on purpose, I don't think they know what they're doing, or how it hurts, or, because they're, they're not in my shoes, they don't understand, they're not, like, it living what I'm living through and if you're ignorant to other people's experiences how are you going to know if you're hurting them and I think the first step is for us to practice healthy communication with others too and to have open dialogue and to um, explain to people why certain things aren't okay and not just attack people for them without explaining why things aren't right without giving them the opportunity to be like oh okay I see like I'm and then truly apologize and then act on it, right? So that that's just that's just a thought there. I, I just think Yeah, just a small up. little thought. But it's like, no, it's a really good thought. It's honestly it's a great fucking thought. And I feel as if like if we really want people to understand us and if we want to be understood, we have to go about it in a manner to where we're creating a conversation with somebody. Just like you said, like we can't just talk at people like that's not going to make anybody want to listen. That's not going to want to make them understand the movement. You know, it's like, I've had experience with people throughout this whole entire movement where they're like, well, I just don't really understand the movement. And like, obviously that ignites a fire within me, but it's just like, okay, okay. Be patient and show how you can make them understand. Like, that's all you can do. And it's like, I feel as if from the beginning of that conversation that I had with those people to now, it's like they understand and they get it and they get why this movement is so significant. And I think that me not backlashing at them really helped that because it's like if I didn't go about it in a subtle manner, then I mean, maybe I did get a little bit aggressive here and there. <laughs> but if I didn't go about it like in the subtle manner that I did. And that, and you know what? That's, that's okay too. I'm not saying that everybody's perfect. Obviously, when people are going to go attacking you, sometimes you want to fight, like, you want to bite back a little bit. But I think it's, like, just becoming more conscious of how we take information in, too, can also be really healthy for us as well. Like, maybe not taking things as personally, too. I think it works both ways. Like, you need to be more empathetic for others, but also... Remember that not everybody is going to be empathetic towards you. And, and that's okay. That's, that's on them. That's something they need to work on. So when people are, you know, saying hurtful things, like, take it and let it just roll off, right? Roll off your back. And then try, try to have that open dialogue if they're willing to have it. And if not, and if you're not safe, then obviously get out of the situation as best as you can, as safely as possible. Oh, yeah. But... That's that, you know, like, I think 100%, if you can have that open dialogue conversation with somebody, I think that's slowly how things are going to change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Like, it has not to start somewhere. every, not every movement or every, every change, right, is always fighting. Exactly. Um, exactly. Fight is so, it, it, fighting is important, right, in, in a lot of ways, but it's, not all of it's going to be fighting. A lot of it is going to be subtler. Exactly. And, like, I had seen videos from, like, protests where it has been, like, there is someone there who is anti-Black Lives Matter, which I don't fucking get it, but there's someone there and they're being really aggressive. And then, like, I just see the person who does support the movement. They're just like, okay, like, I, I, like, why are you upset? Like, literally, why are you upset? Why are you here yelling at me? Like, we're having a conversation, like, right here, right now. Like, why are you yelling? Like, if you're not going to be a part of it, like, just walk away. Like, no, you have no business here. Like, literally, it's like... I, I get it. You're saying, like, they didn't let them affect them because exactly. they're obviously there to be hurtful towards the movement, right? But if, the, if the protesters are just letting it kind of roll off, like, the, all they're doing is wasting their energy, right? Like, do like being hateful, you know? People can only do that for so long. Exactly. Until they get tired. It's like yelling at uh, a brick wall. <laughs> like... Yeah. You just gotta be a brick wall. You just gotta be a brick wall. <laughs> Be a you know, brick wall to the anti-Black Lives Matter people, please. Yeah, and I, you almost, like, for me, I, I've, I try to put myself in different people's perspectives. Oh, yeah. And I have for sure tried to put myself in the perspective of an anti-Black Lives Matter protester. Um, so when I'm thinking, in, if they understand what racism is or what the movement is, is about right maybe they understand their privilege a lot more than than we give them credit for yeah they're yeah. benefiting off of this system that is oppressing right it's putting down these people but it it also gives them the same kind of effect to them they just get the opposite effect you put down these people you give them less of the resources they take white people take more for themselves whether it's consciously or not consciously. And that is that is the perspective. Sometimes I, I, I would think of a black... Like, if I was anti-Black Lives Matter movement, which, God, what the fuck, no. I would never, but... But that that is the perspective I would think, like, they would take. Obviously, they're benefiting off of the system that is currently, you know, intact. Why would they want... To change it. Exactly. So, you know, maybe don't be a shit person. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Don't be a racist. Don't be a racist. Don't Don't be be a racist. Mm -hmm. I won't grow. I'm off tone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I really appreciate you guys listening. I know that this story wasn't... Super enlightening, but it's like, again, it's true crime, and it's like, these are things that do need to be talked about and do need to be discussed, because they're real things that happen, whether it happened back in the 80s or whether it happens tomorrow or yesterday. These are things that need to be talked about. Um, So, something that Dylan and I would really like to do is support Black organizations and Black foundations, which actually help the Black community. So, one of the um, organizations that I have found is Campaign Zero. Have you heard of them before, Dylan? I have not. Okay. So, our organization of the show is going to be the Campaign Zero organization, and they utilize research-based policy solutions to end police brutality in the U.S. Um, Campaign Zero's missions call... 
is to call on local, state, and federal lawmakers to take immediate action to adopt data-driven policy solutions to end violence, to end this violence, and hold police accountable. So you can donate to Campaign Zero at joincampaignzero.org. Ooh! Wonderful. Yes. That's, that's how change, that's how change happens. With laws, let's change them. <laughs> You're absolutely 110% right, Dylan. That is exactly how change happens. It happens with laws. So let's make laws that actually fucking make sense for everybody, not just a particular group of people. Um, so if you guys could please donate to Campaign Zero, it would be really, really appreciated. Do it. Um, <laughs> you know, reposting things on Instagram, any type of social media that you have, signing petitions. Do it. Donating to these foundations. Do These things it. actually help, and they do actually help to make a change. You're, you're, y'all are making it, y'all are making a difference. Even if the media isn't covering all the great change that is happening, it is. It is, it is happening. We are making a difference. You guys are what is making the difference in the world and we're all going to be what makes a better tomorrow and a better future for everybody. Yes. Everybody. <laughs> also, if you guys could please go and check out Strong Island on Netflix. It is a wonderful documentary and honestly, Yancey did such an amazing job with making this film and I just really hope that you guys get to enjoy it just as much as I did. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we go, Dylan? I appreciate so much the story that you shared with us today and i cannot wait for the next episode you're so sweet dylan thank you for listening and i also can't wait for the next episode let's go ahead and say our goodbyes for now this is whisper podcast thanks for listening to whisper podcast where's zach and dylan you can find us at Whisper Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter at Whisper underscore podcast. Visit our website and blog at thewhisperpodcast.com. Interested in chatting with us live? Send us a DM at one of our social sites or reach out at whisperwfpodcast at gmail.com with potential interviewee stated in the subject line. Cover art by Dylan Gomez. Editing by Zach Tyler. Music by audioonyx.com. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Love the show? Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We're a completely independent show. If you would like to support the show and get a shout-out on the air with a special gift, you can find us at Whisper Podcast on Patreon.com. Zach and Dylan are not licensed professionals, nor do we claim to be. Podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. If you are a loved one or in need of immediate help, we recommend that you contact a licensed professional and or the hotline pertaining to your need, which can be found on our website under the Help Is Here tab. Mm-hmm.